This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. I'm sure you heard the news yesterday. A Canadian man stabbed a police officer at a Michigan airport. He made reference uh, to the conflict in the Middle East during the attack. It's now being investigated as a terrorism, an act of terrorism, according to officials. To talk more about all of this, Lauren Dawson is with us, professor at the University of Waterloo, director of uh, TSAS, uh, Canadian Network for Research on Terrorism, Security and Society. He is with us now. Hello, Lauren. How are you today? Good, good. Thank you for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. What are your thoughts when you hear when you heard the news yesterday? Well, I mean, like everybody else, it just seems so unusual and and strange in some regards. And, and I still, you know, we wait, need to wait and hear more information. And it may go one of two directions. So we may be dealing with an individual who uh, represents a lone actor terrorist in the spectrum where there may be mental health issues or personal struggles and issues here, and he's someone who's just drawn to and exploiting the larger sort of terrorist uh, cause as a justification for his actions. In other words, we may not, this may not be something that we want to read too much into. On the other hand, in line with what's happened in London, England, and elsewhere, it may be another legitimate instance of an individual who has been absorbed with these ideas for some time, even though other people maybe weren't aware, and finally reached a point of personal sort of anger and frustration about the political situation that they decided they would take action. Why they would go to Flint, Michigan airport is, of course, the thing that makes it seem strange, because if it were the latter, why wouldn't he just do something in Montreal or where he lives? Well, from what I understand, uh, his, and again, this is all early information, is that uh, he wasn't unhappy with uh, the U.S. involvement in certain countries in the Middle East. Yeah, uh, and so that may account for why I guess he went to the United States, but it does seem like it seemed like an odd situation. In the past, we would have interpreted these actions as probably he's a mentally unstable man who's just exploiting uh, a popular cause. But to some may say an action. But the research literature shows that the vast majority of these lone actors, seventy percent of the lone actors are not individuals with any kind of psychological issues. Really reliable, uh, detailed researchers recently revealed this. So, you know, he may be in that 30% that fit that easy-to-dismiss category, but the majority of these lone actors aren't. So this is why we need to wait to discover more. There's going to be information about his background, about his involvement. Uh, to this point, there has not been really any mental mention of mental illness, has no. there? No. No, no, there hasn't, and his neighbors, I mean, we just have these very simple statements that you get so often that he was a quiet man who seemed to stick to himself and a family man, mm-hmm. and his neighbors saw him as just, a, you know, an ordinary person. Uh, and, and to your, when you were giving us the either this or that, uh, the first point, some may say that any terrorist who takes an ideology this far is mentally ill and that they're just using religion as a way to exploit and, and, and uh, a vehicle for their hate. Yeah, it would be hard in a short form here to give the counter to that other than just to tell you that the scholarship overwhelmingly refutes that. So to use a phrase that is really commonly used now, that actually the New York City Police Department came up through its intelligence reports 
as they call most of the individuals involved in the terrorist attacks in the United States, are quote-unquote remarkably ordinary. Mm-hmm. And what they mean by that is in terms of their background, their education, their their interests, their activities, you could not differentiate these people from the vast majority of the population. So there's very, very little evidence of a, of a pronounced element of mental illness. In the case of lone actors, these guys who do it all by themselves, there's a slightly higher incidence, documented incidence of mental illness. But as I said, that's only slightly higher than the, than the norm. The majority of these people, it is perplexing, but the majority of these people are people who are, for various personal identity reasons, become really strongly attached to these political causes and issues, and in this case, religiously framed political causes and issues, and feel compelled to act. Uh, we have ways of explaining how that happens, but it is a very complex process. Uh, so in other words, they do know what they are doing. They're well aware of what they're doing. They're well aware of what they're doing. And what is really hard for all of us to grasp is the extent to which they're willing to die for these causes. And on the one hand, you've got to always be thinking on either side. On the one hand, when someone's willing to die for something, we know that means they're very serious about it, yeah. right? Hmm. And we have to accept that. On the flip side, of course, it's very hard for any of us to imagine someone willing to die for something, unless we think of a police officer willing to die in the course of duty, a military person willing to die in the course of duty. We have to recognize that these guys have got themselves into a mindset that's similar, where they think they are called to a duty Hmm. and they're willing to sacrifice their lives. This individual, there are reports that he said to the officer that he stabbed, Afterwards, why didn't you kill me? Yeah. Interesting. Suggesting that may have been his end game. Yes, and uh, because there is the other element here, which again is hard for us to grasp, but it is really pervasive in the whole jihadist movement around the world, and that is the issue of martyrdom. And this notion that they really, when you talk to these individuals, you can tell it's very sincere about it. Uh, I mean, it's hard to come to that conclusion, but I've firmly come to the conclusion, they're sincere about it, that they really do believe that if they die for this cause, they are going to be going on to like a better life, a reward in an Mm -hmm. afterlife, and that it is worth dying to achieve that. Which is why some are scared of that religion, because that's the ultimate end, I guess, for some. Uh, it is. Now, it's not so much the religion. Well, be careful. It's not mm-hmm. so much Islam. I mean, that's why some people interpret it. But, of course, that's not how the vast majority of mainstream Muslims think. No, and I don't but mean to suggest that. it is the way that. the jihadists think. Right, right? So right. there is this sub-element that have glorified certain sub-components mm-hmm. and exaggerated them. And their literature is very intense and is very pervasive. I guess that was the point. The world. I think that was the point that I was trying to make, yeah, Lauren, yeah, is that yeah, it's there. Yeah. Um, the other thing, too, to balance this, this crosses all walks of life. We saw that with a London attack in the mosque with the van, uh, the man driving the, the van into the uh, crowded uh, yeah. uh, square when people were leaving the mosque. You know, it turns out to be, you know, a white guy with no religious affiliation whatsoever, it seems, or no connection to any sort of radical group. There is this one kind of curious difference, and uh, I know... In a conversation like this, certain things just come up and you get focused on them. But let's focus on one that I brought up, which is in every instance where you have somebody killing from the far-right perspective, so even if we take Andres Brevik, the guy in 2011 who killed like 70-odd people in Norway, 
and who is anti-Muslim, mm. right? Mm-hmm. They don't die. They yeah. don't commit suicide. Yeah. They surrender themselves to the police. They are doing this as an act of political protest, but they have no intention of dying in the process. And this guy in London allowed himself to be dragged from the truck and and captured, right? Mm-hmm. He didn't try and blow himself up exactly. or he shoot himself, etc. Mm-hmm. So it's a little different. The, from the far right, it's a little bit more of a kind of self-glorifying act generated by anger and, oh, look at me, what a big guy I am, mm-hmm. where, honestly, on the other side, you're seeing more of this, it's perverted from a general perspective, but this more sincere commitment to a cause and to sacrificing themselves for the cause, which, of course, what makes it all that more lethal. Why, that's why, that's why th- people get, I think, more frightened about the jihadist threat, even though actually the far-right threat statistically is larger the threat from the jihadists is frightening because there's this intense level of commitment. And the threat is usually carried out. It's carried out, uh, yeah. For the most part, you know, the rest just sit there and stew. They don't actually take their life into their own hands. But again, why do you think it is that uh, some are willing to give life for it, some aren't? Uh, you know, I don't really know other than, of course, there is this, the religious component that comes into play. Yeah. Um, the religion really ups the ante and renders the whole thing a transcendent act. And uh, the sincerity of the belief then gets, uh, you know, reinforced by this massive religious tradition where the far right is much more of a kind of agglomeration of different kind of conspiracy theories and ideas and anger and frustration. But it's not really united into an ideology and into a worldview in the same way. So uh, it and it attracts slightly different people. The far right does tend to attract people that are more from the margins of society and are struggling uh, with the uh, world order as it is, with the economy the way it is, with the political system the way it is. So they're more just angry guys. Right. Where the jihadists are, they're angry and upset, but they're also really wrapped up in a vision of what they think would be a better world. It's a, it's a perverted one from our perspective, but it really is this extra element of a vision of something better that seems to make the difference. Uh, does does that matter? Um, uh, at the end, in the end, it's all terror. Um, but obviously, what's the solution, and is the solution different? Well, the solution is different, just in the sense that when we're dealing with the jihadists, <clears throat> we do need to come to grips with. Uh, the religious component of it in the sense of why would someone be drawn? There must be things happening in our larger social context and environment that are causing a a proportion, small proportion of young people to feel this intense need for meaning, for purpose, for ultimate sort of transformation of the world. It's something we're very uncomfortable with in our very secular society now, but we have to recognize that there have been people with an intense religious motivation throughout human history. They haven't disappeared from our society, but they have no place, they have no location now in our society. So they get pushed into these extreme measures on the margins of society. So in dealing, countering it, you have to come to grips with this kind of religious component or motivation, I would argue. If you're dealing with the far right, there you actually are more often dealing with people who the system has just not treated them right. Right. So they're more exposed to being uh, why has one by having better jobs, better education, better opportunities. Why has one brought out the other? 
Yeah, that's uh, definitely they exist now in a kind of symbiotic relationship, and we're starting to see that. And because at one point we yeah. used to characterize all terrorists as being the same. Yeah. Now that's not the case. It's crossed all. It's crossed all walks of life. It appears, although yeah. you know, coming from a different place, obviously, as you've, as you've yeah. suggested. But we have to recognize statistically in the United States, but elsewhere as well. But we'll mainly focus on the states. The there's been about ten times as many terrorist acts perpetrated by people on the far right, just to use a broad category, than has ever been perpetrated since 9/11 by uh, jihadists, and that the death rate from uh, the far-right attacks are much higher. They just don't receive the same attention because usually we're talking about one or two individuals dying, a person ki- killing a cop and dying in the process, or killing a member of their own family and then maybe uh, wounding a police officer. Isn't geography like largely responsible for that, though? The fact Ge- that, yeah, U.S. is just farther away. They're not going to get that sort of attack like Europe certainly would. No, that's true. But if we even just take it uh, around the world, the number of people involved in far-right movements, the level of violent rhetoric, mm. uh, in Europe it's stopped by lack of access to weapons. Uh, in the United States, we're getting a lot of action because, of course, you, it's very easy to be very heavily armed. So security services are starting to realize that the far right is coming back and that it's a threat and more importantly to get to our initial point in reaction to jihadist terrorist attacks people are starting to say well if they are doing this we've got to do something so we are seeing more violence directed towards the muslim community everywhere and of course regrettably here in canada with the attack in in quebec we have one of the very worst instances in the entire world but I, all of us are expecting that, regrettably, we're going to see more of that. The, uh, amount, uh, the amount of anti-Muslim incidents, reported hate incidents in Canada, went up by 60% over the last year. Are they coming back because they feel government isn't doing enough? Uh, probably from their mindset, yes, because, of course, the actions they'd want the government to engage in are completely unconstitutional, right? I mean, they would want to see they're the people who support Trump's ban, reading it for what it really is, right? A ban on Muslims entering the United States. Just to bring this back around to Montreal, um, uh, what do you think the situation is here? With this individual? Mm -hmm. I I suspect we're going to, it's going to make it complicated. I think it's probably going to be a little bit of the blend of of both, meaning that we're probably going to discover that this individual has experienced recently some frustrations and setbacks and problems in their life that as a result of that they probably have been online a lot with some jihadist materials and probably have been in contact with people in the Montreal community who are radical have radical views as well and it's the combination of these two things that push this person over the edge into this attack so the parallel the dead parallel will probably be similar to the guy in Nice that rented the truck and plowed people down on the boardwalk in Nice that had these same elements. It's a personally troubled person to a degree, but not massively so, who recently had come into contact with people who were Mm. manipulating them with the ideas. Lauren Dawson has been with us, professor at the University of Waterloo, director of TSAS, Canadian Network for Research on Terrorism, Security, and Society. Lauren, fascinating discussion. Thanks for the time. Much appreciated. No problem. Okay. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.
The Premier of Ontario says she's disappointed that New York lawmakers have reached an agreement on legislation that would require state construction projects to use American iron and steel. Uh, Wynne says the Buy American deal announced by Governor Como on Tuesday will impact Ontario businesses. Her government lobbied against more sweeping Buy American provisions that had been introduced as part of New York's budget. Uh, this spring, and Wynn credited Ontario's advocacy for uh, defeating the proposal. Talk more about all of this. Marvin Ryder is with us, business professor at Groot School of Business, McMaster University. He is with us now. Hello, Marvin. How are you doing today? I'm fine, thank you, Scott. Thank you for taking the time, as always. What happened here? It looked like when it was budget time in New York that things were looking good. Uh, when did this turn? Oh, well, we have to actually go back to the start of the year. Uh, Andrew Cuomo, the Democratic governor, uh, had a house that was uh, feeling its oats, shall we speak, after the election of Donald Trump. Donald Trump wanted to make America great again, so the, the legislators in New York said, I've got a great idea. Anytime the state of New York spends $100,000 or more, let's make sure it's only an American company getting the deal. Well, that alarmed a lot of people uh, in, on this side of the border. And as Kathleen Wynne pointed out, uh, the federal government sent people down, the province sent people down, both the prime minister and the premier met with legislators in New York, and they, they explained to them that, are you looking for the best use of your taxpayer dollar, or are you looking to simply put America first? And here's the good news. They managed to defeat that. That was defeated, actually, in April, this measure to make sure that any expansion over 100000 but it seems like the legislators didn't want to give up completely, so here's what they've done. They've said uh, any state spending, uh, and they've listed a series of agencies, I won't give you that list, but things like, say, we're building a new highway or we're building a new bridge, there we're going to specify American steel only. So we had a defeat there. As well, they uh, said any time uh, in the next year they're going to have a task force to look at things like concrete, aluminum, gravel, to see whether they need to do the same thing. So, yes, Kathleen Wynne's disappointed. Now, should we be disappointed? Well, this rule doesn't come into effect until April 1st, 2018. So there's 11 months or so to do something about this. Kathleen Wynne says she's not going to give up the fight, and usually the next step in the fight would be to lodge a protest with the NAFTA review board. NAFTA, the North American Free Trade, it would govern this, and in fact, NAFTA is very specific to say this kind of a buy American policy is contrary to what NAFTA is all about. However, as you know, we're about to renegotiate NAFTA, so there isn't exactly a review board to go and appeal to at this point. She's going to raise her concern strenuously, um, and I, I think she's of two minds. On one hand, we dodged a really big bullet on the $100,000 one, We've lost a little something here. Who's it going to affect? She says Ontario, but there aren't that many steel producers in Ontario. It's mostly Hamilton and also up uh, Algoma uh, up north. That's about the only people this is going to affect. So in a way, she's protected most of the economy, but she hasn't given up. She's not giving up on steel. She's not writing it off. But I'm just not sure what her next step is in the protest. Uh, well, that's my next question. What, what, what sort of retaliation, what can uh, Ontario do? Uh, and is this more U.S. proof that it does need to be renegotiated? Well, uh, remember where Donald Trump is coming from. And, and there are lots of your listeners, by the way, who would agree with him. If you're spending a dollar, you should spend it locally first. We should spend all this money in Hamilton, be damned. But at the same time, t taxpayers want the money to be well spent. And if I can save taxpayer money by using a Quebec contractor or a Manitoba or a British Columbia or an American, what's the right thing here to do? And, and I'm, I must say I'm very torn. I want efficient government 
which means I want the lowest price possible to get the maximum use of my tax dollars. On the other hand, it would be nice, all things being equal, if I could patronize the local person first. How much of a premium am I willing to pay for local versus uh, international? That becomes an interesting point. So I think Donald Trump has sparked this talk. We're going to hear more of it rather than less of it. Some of it will come up during NAFTA, but some of it's going to come up because Donald Trump wants to spend, now wait for this, Scott, $1 trillion, that's with a T, $1 trillion on infrastructure in the United States. And for sure, the House and the Senate in the United States will want to put some kind of Buy American clause on there. Now, one other quick note about this Buy American, who is the United States really afraid of? Well, they're not really afraid of Canada. What would drive them crazy is if you're spending money on infrastructure and that money somehow worked its way into China's pockets, or even worse, Russia's pockets. Hmm. So I can see why you might want to restrict it from certain entities, but Buy American to the exclusion of everybody else would we retaliate in Canada? We normally turn the other cheek and say, no, we're not going to play that game. And I'm not sure that would be the first card I would play either. Instead, I would try to explain why just this buy America and not think of North America as really all part of the same family, why that doesn't work, what would be in their benefit. It's filled them through pocketbook issues, in other words, before I would start doing other things. But one thing she doesn't have at this moment is that ability to appeal and tie this up. This is the same thing, by the way, with our softwood lumber. You know, we believe that we're on the right side of the softwood lumber issue. We would normally appeal the United States uh, putting on a tariff on Canadian softwood lumber to this panel, this tribunal, but they're not meeting at the moment because the agreement is in uh, up in arms. And you may have heard a separate issue today that the chief negotiator of the United States says he's in no hurry to negotiate a new NAFTA. Mexico said they'd like the deal done by the end of the first quarter of 2018 because they're facing an election next year. The NAFTA negotiator says 2018, 2019, however long it takes, I'm prepared to negotiate to get a good deal. But all that also means is there will be no uh, way to appeal any decisions the United States makes until a new deal is struck. Uh, New York State, obviously more liberal than Republican. Uh, Como is, is a Democrat. Why are they so interested in Trump protectionism all of a sudden? Well, I'm not sure Andrew is, but his legislature is more Republican than Democrat. And, and so what Donald Trump's election has done has fueled a series of feelings across the United States. For instance, in the business community, we're hearing all kinds now of American businesses excuse me, prepared to uh, put allegations out there that international companies are competing fairly. Boeing in Washington state says that Bombardier is not right. We had uh, two solar companies in the United States who are performing so badly they're in creditor protection, but they've now alleged that a Canadian solar company is not fair. It's not fair that their costs are less than ours. We should do something about them. And they're coming out of the woodwork because they sense a change in Washington. Now, having said that to you, we also see that Donald Trump's agenda, shall we call it, is getting mired, uh, some of it due to the Russia allegations, some of it due to the other investigations. That sentiment can change again, but I think for at least the next six, eight months, we're going to hear more pro-American forces at play. We're going to hear more talk about protectionism, because right now that's in favor in Washington. Will that translate into jobs for America? I mean, obviously, short-term gain, long-term pain, but at the end, it, it'll be jobs and 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 success which uh, drive this point, point home. Will we see that with this, especially once we've come this far in the world? Right. So that's, you know, that's a very good question. And and if I said to you, yes, you might see more American jobs, but remember the same people who want American jobs also want lower taxes. Are they prepared 
to spend the money to create the American jobs at the flip side of this of having a less efficient use of taxpayer money. And right now, I hear people coming from a position of unreality. In other words, they want the best of both worlds. I want all those American jobs, but I also want to keep costs really low. Um, I'm, I'm just not sure they can have all of that. But for the moment, this is something they want to explore, and I think we've got to let them go down this road to discover what might be the pot of gold, if there is any, at the end of the rainbow. Would this be temporary, Marvin, considering what's happening in both with the economy of the world and, and certainly what's happening with the United States? Can you keep this up, or eventually do they have to open it back up again just in order to be profitable? Yeah, So so, and again, I know your listeners will be split-minded on this, I really do believe the future for our world is around free trade. At the moment, America going against that force, what does that mean for Canada and Ontario? Then we need to speak to those people who are of the same mind. Uh, Scott, I don't know how much your listeners know. Do you remember this thing called the Trans-Pacific Partnership? Yep. Uh, it was supposed to be 12 countries coming together. The big one was the United States, and Donald Trump announced in February, I'm withdrawing, and you and I may have talked about this and said, well, TPP is dead. Well, I have news for you. It's not dead. It's actually come back as TPP-11, because the 11 other countries said, well, we wanted the United States in, but even if we don't have them, there's still a good reason for the rest of us to keep talking. Now the big prize, not the United States, but Japan, the third largest economy in the world. And I think Justin Trudeau and his ministers, and I think Kathleen Wynne and her ministers, if, if for the moment the United States is going in the wrong direction, this is actually probably a good reminder to us that the rest of the world is still growing, and we need to get into those markets. Yes, we need the United States. I don't want to turn my back there, but we know that, for instance, uh, China is the second largest economy and will be the first economy within 10 years. India is in the top 10, and it will probably move into the number two spot in 25 years. If this gives us an incentive to look elsewhere and build trade while temporarily the United States is singing a different song, I agree with you. I think in the long term, i.e. after the next provincial, uh, next presidential election, it will likely turn in the other direction. But while we've got four years, here's a great chance to open up some different markets for us. So this could be an opportunity simply because we're used to taking the path of least, re- least resistance. Right. And not only that, Big Brothers down south of us has all the money. So this will, this in fact could encourage trading with others. Absolutely. If I just use a different example, our good friends, the other part of the North American Free Trade Agreement, Mexico, remember Donald's going to build the wall and mm-hmm. he's going to make them pay for it. Well, they've said the same thing. They've said, wait a minute. You know, we, it's so easy to trade with the United States because they're right there. They're just, you know, it's just our next door neighbor. But just because it's easy and just because it's big doesn't mean that's the way to go. So, uh, uh, Mr., uh, I think it's Enrique Peña Nieto, who's the president of Mexico, he's now traveling all over the world to talk about what Mexico can do. And he's actually seen this as an advantage. He hadn't really spent as much time on the international stage as he should, having, uh, having headwinds, if you will, in the United States has caused him to look elsewhere. So I think this could have some benefit, but it will come with some short-term pain. I don't want to overstate this. I don't know how much DeFasco output would be going to the states. Now, the big interesting question for us, because remember, it is 10 days, less than 10 days away, that Stelco becomes owned by Bedrock Capital. Mm -hmm. Bedrock is an American company. It was founded in Florida. Uh, next Tuesday, in fact, at the Bay Area Economic Summit, I've been asked to chat with the CEO or the managing director of Bedrock, and I'm going to ask him the question point blank. You know, do you think 
your American ownership of Stelco would allow Stelco to compete on these American contracts, whether they're in New York or in the rest of the wow. state. Huh. And that answer could be very interesting. So it may actually hurt DeFasco, but it may not hurt Stelco as it rebounds from its creditor protection. Wouldn't that be ironic in the end? It would be, and that's why I want, that's why I want to ask him the question. <laughs> uh, did, you, were you, did you hear the story that Donald Trump was going to use the wall to put solar panels on? No, I did not hear that's that. That's a story out of Iowa. <laughs> Well, I'll leave it at that. Uh, uh, let generation galore. Exactly. What a brilliant idea, Marvin. Uh, Sears, uh, we've yeah. talked about it so many times. What's, what's the future here? Mm-hmm. So, of course, the announcement first yesterday was that they were seeking creditor protection, and then today they were granted creditor protection, and they unveiled the first part of their restructuring plan. Uh, roughly 154 stores in Canada, and they're closing 59. There's a series of stores. I suppose the good news locally is neither the big Sears in Burlington nor the big Sears in Hamilton are affected at the moment, but there is a Sears, uh, I think they call it Home, Sears Home Store in Ancaster that is slated to close. Um, what is the news here? Well, can they restructure themselves out of this? Maybe. We have seen them uh, introduce some new formats. This is why Hamilton didn't close. They put a new format there. And by the way, oddly enough, this weekend, they're in one of the big malls in Toronto. They're revealing their new formatted stores. And in those stores, sales seem to be going up. They seem to have found a way to position themselves. But is it too little too late or too much too late? Uh, that's really the question here. If they cannot find some way to restructure themselves over the next three months, then there is only one way to go, and that's bankruptcy. The same kind of liquidation you saw after Target, the same kind of liquidation you saw after Zellers, we could be in for another one of those come this fall. The other question I have in my mind is there possibly, possibly a white knight who might come in and take on some of the Sears uh, locations. And that question in my mind is a company called Kohl's, K-O-H-L apostrophe S, in the United States. They have been kicking the tires of Canadian expansion. Would this opportunity help them out in some way? But I, I don't want to sugarcoat this, Scott. This, this is not good news. There is a, a distinct possibility, I'd put it at more than 50%, that Sears will not be with us past Christmas of this year. But at least they've now got the credit protection that gives them some wiggle room to try to restructure and find a way forward. All right, I can't let you go without chatting about the LCBO. It sounds uh, the rhetoric is in uh, full gear. Yep. Both sides are, are at it with commercials and, uh, I guess, uh, uh, setting up uh, offices outside of offices, this sort of thing. Um, we, I was listening to Smokey Thomas yesterday, who's uh, the president of their union, and you know he said things like, we've got people who are working four hours a day and for 90 days in a row. We've got uh, people who who, uh, can't be put onto full time. Does he have a point here or is this just the reality of this sort of retail experience that it's it's this job, it's not meant to be a full-time job? Are these people getting a fair shake? I'm going to say the short answer is no, uh, but now the question is why aren't they getting this fair shake? And certainly it's clear that the provincial government has looked at the LCBO. Remember, uh, I think his name is Ed Brown, the former uh, CEO at one of the big banks. He was looking at all the assets owned by the government and said, are they generating as much profit as they possibly could? So there's been a big pressure on the LCBO to improve their revenues. It's also part of the reason why some of the LCBO stock is now being made available in grocery stores. They're not trying to turn us into a province of alcoholics, but there is no doubt that access to alcohol improves its sales. So there's been a pressure on this. 
I frankly, uh, the allegations from the union surprised me to some extent. I did not realize how many jobs at the LCBO were part-time. I'm assuming it's not because of the wage, but it's because of the benefits that LCBO is trying to avoid. And I think they have a good cause here. Now, historically, there's been a lot of rancor back and forth between management and the union, but it's never once in the history of the LCBO resulted in a strike. So that's coming up. And the union will say that part of what the, why management is taking a tough line now is you'll actually see sales go up. They're opening the hours. Yeah. They'll be open longer. So Buy all, now, quickly, before the oh, strike. Yes, but you don't want to you want, want to go dry. Get your stuff now because when that strike. So we may actually see a boost in sales, and they're cynically saying that then after they get a bit of a boost in sales, they may settle. It does seem both sides have drawn some pretty strong lines in the sand. I think there's room for LCBO management to blink here and increase the percentage of their workforce, which is full-time, or at least not in this uh, part-time limbo with no benefits, maybe is to change the definition of who gets some benefits in here. I think there's some room and still generate a good profit for us. I think they'll eventually find a way to avoid the strike, but I wouldn't be surprised if it goes for a day or two just so everyone can claim some victory. But I don't think anyone wants to see this closed for very long. Wow. So you think they'll break history here, they'll break trend, and they actually will go this time? You know, it just they've, when you hear the steps both sides have been taking, it's not easy to back down from that. And also the time is short. Remember, this is going to happen on, on July the 2nd or something like that, Tuesday. There isn't many days left between now and then. If something can move, but I think this may be the time that each side calls their bluff and we'll actually see a strike. But I don't think it'll be long. On our 150th birthday. That's why you want to stock up now. <laughs> Marvin Ryder, uh, Marvin Ryder, business professor at Groot School of Business, McMaster University. Marvin, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Happy to help out. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. The Privacy Commissioner in Ontario is calling for the government to make information public on which facilities provide medic- uh, medically assisted death. Uh, and the bigger question is, why isn't this information available? To talk about all of this, Shanaz Gokul is with us, CEO of Dying with Dignity Canada, and is on the line with us now. Hello, Shanaz. How are you today? I'm well, thanks. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing very well. You know, it seemed it took a, a great deal of time to get the legislation uh, where it was, which I understand is, is a year ago now. Um, is it now, shh, keep it quiet, don't tell anybody? No, it's really hard to understand what Ontario did um, when they passed just recently, a couple of months ago, Bill 84, which is a a medical assistance in dying statute uh, that would allow medical assistance in dying to to be um, provided in this province. And one of the provisions that they had um, was on freedom of information requests. And these are requests that, you know, members of the, the public, organizations, journalists use to find out what is happening in certain um, government-related programs like healthcare, um, and to hold government responsible. And so in Bill 84, you know, of course we support, as, as does the Privacy Commissioner, the, um, the privacy of individuals and clinicians, um, but Bill 84 also put a ban on freedom of information requests related to public health care facilities and medical assistance in dying. And we think that goes too far, and so does the Privacy Commissioner of Ontario. On this um, issue, we, we, we agree. How can we understand what is happening in people's communities as it relates to the provision of, of assistance in dying if you know, hospitals are allowed to sort of duck um, and, and use some cover 
um, because of the lady four. Uh, skeptics of all of this say that they're they're just doing this to protect the institutions and the people that work in them. That it's a it's a privacy issue, and I guess they're worried that these hospitals will be protested or attacked. Well, so I think there's a couple of things here, and I, I was really impressed when. Um, Commissioner Binish spoke about this issue uh, at the legislative hearing studying Bill 84. Um, and, you know, he has more resources than we do, his office does. And so they looked at all the um, other jurisdictions internationally and in the U.S. where assisted dying happens and have found no evidence um, that there's any sort of issues around safety uh, and said, you know, are there approaches evidence-based? And I support evidence-based uh, approaches. But also when you sort of stop and think about it logically, I mean, in theory, you would think that there's more safety in numbers. So if all hospitals and hospices um, have to provide assisted dying, then it's really hard to mm. target anyone. And, but that's not the case in Ontario, right? So hospices and hospitals are allowed to opt out. And what we have found is that the ones that are providing are being quite forthcoming with information and, and letting their communities know if they're providing or not. It's the ones who are not. Um, that are not being very forthcoming, not just about what their policies are, but how they deal with requests that come from their facilities for people who are looking for assistance in dying. And I think that's the problem here. Um, I'm not really convinced by the safety argument. And in terms of, you know, people protesting, you know, Commissioner Beamish made this really clear, and myself as a human rights, human rights activist, I support this, that peaceful protest is a right in this country. Um, and so we want to make sure that we're, we're carefully balancing the different rights involved, and there's no evidence to suggest that there's going to be safety concerns um, by letting communities know which uh, facilities provide assistance in dying and which don't. So this is not about getting information to people who want this service. It's about hearing from the ones that don't provide it. Well, I mean, I think it's a bit of both, right? Um, so that, you know, people... Um, in their communities. And we have to remember that, you know, when we're talking about health care in this province and indeed in the whole country, we're talking about publicly funded health care. Um, and there have to be mechanisms in place for transparency and how policy decisions about the delivery of health care is happening um, and also accountability to the communities that they're supposed to serve. These are facilities that are set up to serve people in those communities. Um, and so it's really important for people to understand, you know, what services are being offered by their public health care facilities um, and what aren't, you know, which ones aren't and right. why aren't they. So wh- what is the criteria around opting in or out? Uh, well, I wish somebody could tell me that in, in straight terms. Because, because as, you me- as you mentioned, they do, uh, hospitals, institutions do have the right to opt out of this, Correct. That's correct. So Ontario passed another piece of legislation in December, Bill 41, um, which on one hand allows the health minister of the province to pass directives um, about health care policy directly to boards. But there is a subclause to that provision in this massive piece of legislation in Bill 41, which allows faith-based hospitals um, to not um, have to follow and to be able to opt out of those directives by the health minister. So we know with... Um, uh, you know, medical assistance in dying, that there are a number of uh, facilities, not all are faith, faith-based, um, but many are, that are saying, yeah, we don't have to provide. We know hospices are saying, yeah, we don't have to provide for whatever reason. Um, and we know that some of the best quality palliative care is going to come from places that are opting out. We also know that there are some facilities that have opted out where it's the only facility for an entire community. Mm. Uh, so it becomes a real problem for access. And then it's further 
um, you know, complicated when we can't even get information about how these op- the, the facilities that are opting out, how they're actually operating, because now they're protected under Bill 84. But to get to the root of this, uh, you feel everyone should be, if they're a publicly funded facility, be providing the service? You know, it's an interesting question, um, and certainly yes. And I would say medical assistance in dying is unique. Um, it, it has the force of a Supreme Court of Canada decision. It now has the force of legalization, um, both federally and in this province provincially. And it's an insured medical treatment um, in every province and territory. It is part of health care. Uh, and so, yes, we would argue that all publicly funded health care facilities, these are facilities that receive taxpayer monies, um, should be providing health care. And the thing with medical assistance in dying is while it is a profound treatment, um, it doesn't require any special equipment. You know, you need a, a room, a private room, and you need a, a bed, um, and you need the willing clinicians, uh, and that's all you need. And in the past, hospitals uh, and other facilities have been allowed to opt out of providing certain services um, because they hide behind sort of equipment requirements that might be necessary. So not every hospital has an MRI, you know, therefore not every hospital should provide. That's not what we're talking about here, right? We're talking about a very special type of medical treatment that doesn't require any special equipment and should therefore be allowed um, to happen wherever people are. I mean, It's very inconvenient, isn't it, that people die in places um, that that may not be so convenient for for certain hospitals or hospices, but that's where people die, and people should be allowed to die in those facilities, especially considering that they are paid for by taxpayer money. Do we know how many facilities do provide and how many don't provide? I guess that information isn't there as well. And is it mostly religious hospitals, based hospitals that are opting out? I think it's it's a combination of faith-based, but also not faith-based. I mean, many hospices aren't faith-based, um, and they're just opting out because they don't think it should be part of end-of-life care. Uh, you know, sort of mind-boggling in a way when medical assistance in dying is about helping people die well um, once they enter uh, their end-of-life. Um, and what we've, we've launched a, a Shine a Light campaign. We have a Google map on our website, dyingwithdignity.ca, where we've asked our supporters and members of the public to call and find out in their communities, um, you know, who's providing and who's not. So it's not a scientific poll by any stretch. But imagine it's the best we can do because the government um, uh, has put this shield around uh, publicly funded healthcare facilities. So the best that we can do is ask our supporters, because we don't have the resources to call every hospital and hospice um, and long-term care residency um, in the province, um, to help us try to find the answer to that. And you would think that the answer to that should be something that the Ministry of Health in this province should be accountable. It shouldn't have to you know, be our little organization trying to figure out what's happening in communities all across the province. The, 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 you know, the ministry should be responsible, and they have to be accountable um, to how health care is delivered uh, in communities all across the province. How do you find out information about this? Um, what is the process if you're interested in this for a family member or yourself? Well, I mean, in many cases, by the time you find out, especially if they're opting out, it's too late. You're already in that facility. Right. You know, people don't get a choice of, oh, I would like to go to this hospice instead of that hospice. Um, they go to wherever there's, a, you know, a, a bed, a space available for them. Hmm. Uh, and so, you know, you and you don't know. Like, once you enter palliative care, if you're in um, a faith-based hospital that doesn't want to provide medical assistance to dying, you're not going to know necessarily on day one, I want to have an assisted death. That, that might take you a few days. It may right. take you a week or two. So, I mean, knowing at least gives people some information. It certainly helps us 
in, you know, it's trying to put forward really powerful arguments about how unfair and how cruel it is um, to have to force people to move around uh, when they're so physically compromised at the most vulnerable times in their lives. Um, but it's just, it, it's really about transparency in the delivery of healthcare in, in this province. And I think that this government was elected with a mandate of open government doesn't feel very open and transparent. Uh, do you think that uh, the reason for not educating the public on this is fear of backlash? Uh, or do you think it's because they want to continually play in the gray area and don't want to make a call either way? I think it's the latter. I mean, I, I think that what we've seen with medical assistance in dying on a number of different issues um, has been a lack of courage. Uh, by uh, decision makers, uh, legislative decision makers, and uh, and certainly on on this issue of where assisted dying can happen, there's definitely a lack of courage. And you know we you know we we heard all last year as the legislation was making its way, the federal legislation, we need to protect the vulnerable, protect the vulnerable, 100% protect the vulnerable, protect that vulnerable person who's in a hospital or a hospice that wants to access their legal right, their constitutional right to an assisted death, who if they're trying transferred may cause them more physical harm. It may cause them psychological harm because of feeling abandoned. Um, And it may also cause the clinicians and the staff at the facility that's opting out psychological harm because now they're not allowed to help their their patient through their final days. And then there's this whole issue of conscience. How can one hospital have one conscience on behalf of what could be you know, thousands of people that work and our patients mm. are residents there. I mean, it's exactly what they say they want. We want the same thing, accommodation and protection. You know, accommodation, you should be able to accommodate people um, uh, in those uh, facilities. They pay their taxes um, so that when you go uh, to a hospital or a hospice in you know, desperate need of health care, that you can get the services that you need. That's, that's the principle um, in terms of how government services are delivered. We pay for them. So what, um, what is, uh, just to, to take this in another direction, what is the criteria for an assisted death? What, where do you have to be? So uh, in the federal legislation, uh, you have to um, have a grievous and irremediable medical condition. Your condition has to be incurable, um, and by, by that I mean that you, there isn't any treatments that are acceptable to you. Um, you have to be in an advanced state of irreversible decline of capability, and your natural death has, has, become, um, has to be, have become uh, reasonably foreseeable. Now, this has caused a lot of problems over the past year, the natural death being reasonably foreseeable, been very difficult. It's very vague. Yeah, but there was a decision in Ontario on Monday in the case of AB, um, and the judge in that decision, because she was having difficulty getting consensus amongst um, doctors as to whether uh, she met the criteria of natural death becoming reasonably foreseeable. And what he told the court and, and in his decision, which tells all of Ontarians and hopefully the rest of the country, that reasonably foreseeable does not mean that there has to be a specific time frame. You know, it means you have to be on a trajectory towards death um, and that clinicians uh, should use their clinical expertise to make that determination, but there is not a time frame attached. It's not six months. It's not a year. It could be longer, and certainly in the case of AB, who did not and does not have a terminal illness, um, she could live for, you know, hypothetically, she could live for years. So I think and I hope that that decision um, uh, in the coming weeks and months will provide more clarity so that people who have severe chronic conditions where they could live for years um, should now be eligible for medical assistance. What about dementia? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> dementia 
uh, is is problematic. But I, you know, and, and I think we need to sort of look at the decision from AB a little bit more closely because. Many people, once they have a diagnosis, may still have capacity. And once you have that diagnosis, I mean, the average life expectancy for dementia is fairly short, but it varies from person to person. But you do know that you're on a trajectory towards death. One question, so, Shanaz. Yeah. Uh, what, you know, um, you, you hear people who are against this, yet you hear so many situations, um, and my my parents' peer group is in this in this age group now where, where they're passing, um, that, you know, you hear so many stories uh, and they ask this question, what's the difference between an assisted death or one that the institution provides by simply not feeding somebody and injecting them full of drugs and it taking two or three days as opposed to the time that it would take with yeah, an assisted death? It's a, it's a, I mean, this happens all the time, does it not? It does. And what you're describing in the latter part there was is palliative terminal sedation, where the intention of the clinicians... Um, is to provide pain relief, but by amping up the meds in order to provide that pain relief, um, it may have the unintended consequence of, of causing or hastening death. Now, uh, I've heard the stories, I know you know the stories, uh, where, you know, I think that it happens all the time, and it's not necessarily um, for just pain management. People know. It's an accepted mm. way that people have died, you know, all across this country. And it's really important when Justice Lynn Smith at the BC trial at, at Carter, the Carter decision which led to this, she examined these issues of withdrawal of treatment or palliative sedation and medical assistance in dying. And from her perspective, there really is no legal distinction. These are all things that in the end um, uh, will hasten someone's mm. death. Medical assistance in dying can do it quite quickly and you're doing it with that intention. But certainly when a person, you know, um, has indicated that uh, in their advanced care plan that they would like a withdrawal of treatment uh, in certain situations um, or a person's, um, you know, has, has, has been given terminal palliative sedation, these are all things that hasten death. So there's not, there's not a huge distinction legally uh, for some people. It's just which one is the most humane, Shanaz, well, at I the mean, end of the day. And at the end of the day, medical assistance in dying is all about choice. And there's so much oversight um, in the current legislation um, in ensuring that people who make that decision make it because it's their choice. Now, what I would say around terminal palliative sedation, which I think is absolutely a reasonable alternative. Quickly. The thing that that concerns me there is there is no oversight. We don't know that the person has consented. Hmm. And I think that all Hmm. end-of-life treatment should have really clear oversight, including medical assistance in dying and terminal palliative. Interesting. Shanaz Gokul is with the CEO of Dying with Dignity Canada. Shanaz, thanks for the time as always. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.